Jesse, thanks for coming on. Uh, this is going to be a great podcast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, what I'm looking for over the series of this podcast is take us on a journey and what led you to where you are today. Uh, and I want to start with um, what did you do in the military and what was that transition process from the military into the civilian world? So let's start off with what was your military history? What did you do and uh, how was it? Yeah, absolutely. I think a uh, journey is a good word for, for this discussion coming up. And I'll actually go a little bit before uh, the military, just because I had a, you know, not, not super odd, but somewhat distinct um, side where I had a professional career before going into the military. So before uh, even enlisting, I uh, went, got my bachelor's in economics. I was working at an investment bank in New York, um, not for super long, but sort of enough to kind of get the sense of it. Um, I ended up joining the military as something I always wanted to do, something I was kind of searching for myself. And so, you know, decided to just go all in and enlist uh, and go straight from there to, to Ranger um, to do all the, that process of selection. I ended up at 1st Battalion, uh, 75th Ranger uh, in Savannah. And over the course of my time there, I ended up becoming a, an NCO. I was a section leader, so I was a I was in mortar platoon, um, and ended up doing three combat uh, deployments to Afghanistan over the course of that. Uh, when did you join the military? Two thousand ten. Okay, so you knew going in, especially if you're going to go Ranger, you knew that you were going to see some shit. Yeah, I mean that was kind of the. I guess I wouldn't say the goal, but like I knew coming from where I was coming from, if I was going to join the military, we're not, my family's not a military family. Like when I announced this it was a little bit of a shock to the familial system mm. uh, and a lot of questions as, are you crazy? Why are you doing that? Uh, especially coming from like, oh, you're going to be, you know, making a lot of money, all this kind of stuff. Uh, for me, like I said, it was something that I felt like I needed to, to develop myself. But going into it, I, I did know, I did my research. Like, I, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> I knew more than the recruiters were telling me because that's probably a better way to go. I still got deceived a little bit, you know, as a, any good military story does. Um, oh, yeah. But I knew what I, if I was going to join, I wanted to be surrounded by people who were, I want to be as trained, as well-trained as possible, but I also want to be surrounded by people that were as well-trained as possible. So for me, my goal was to be special operations, which was pretty high uh, aim just because I, I wasn't necessarily athletic or anything like that. But it's like, Hey, if I'm going into this and if I'm risking my life, I want to be like the, in the utmost sort of capacity. Um, so with that, I knew that there was a very high likelihood that I'd be in the shit, but um, I mean, that's also kind of part of it too, which I really kind of didn't know as a civilian, but came to learn of you spend so much time in misery in the training environment, especially in Ranger where you're just like, it's, it's, it's one of the worst things ever. It's great, but it's also the worst things ever. So by the time you get to deployment, it's actually a little bit of a, a relief and it's, um, you're actually like utilizing some of your skills, some of your knowledge set. And for people who are not in the military, the whole training philosophy is they want to put you in the worst situations possible. So in the worst case scenario, if you end up in that, you're not going to freak out. You know what to do. Right. And so a lot of the selection, a lot of the trainings are all about that. Like, 
let's take every away every single comfort that you know and see how you can still operate. You know, that's sort of the philosophy of ranger school. You sleep deprivation, food deprivation. I was in winter. Uh, can you still lead um, a team, a platoon of men on a raider ambush over Georgian mountains and uh, still reach the desired outcome? Yeah, I, I agree. Training sucked. And once you finally got to a deployment, it was a time to, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a time to relax, but it was more of like, okay, we're done sucking so much. Now we get to do what we want to do. Yeah. And you're, uh, I think when, when you're a private, it still sucks when you're over there, but generally speaking, once you like um, prove yourself, mm-hmm. it's, it, it tends to be a little bit more relaxed environment because I think everybody over there knows the, 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 it's a much more stressful environment. So they don't need to be as hard on you on a day-to-day basis as they might in training. We don't need to add more stress to the stress fire already. Um, so three deployments, how long were you in? Uh, only four and a half years. So pretty short stint, but over the course of that, um, there, there was a lot that that happened. So, um, three deployments, how long were your deployments over uh, about four to five months so with, okay. with ranger what they do there's three battalions and so they're just continually deploying so one battalion's always over there mm-hmm. and so essentially what it turns out to be is like you spend half the year training half the year deployed okay um overall how was your experience in the military it was good i mean it's like the normal like there's there's no all roses story of the military you have your we all have our, our stories and stuff like that but it was exactly what I needed it to be at that time in my life to fully understand myself and sort of that coming of age, becoming a man, mm-hmm. knowing, you know, testing my mettle, knowing what I'm worth sort of thing. It was the absolute necessary thing for me personally to become who I am and to, you know, tackle future endeavors. Um, and even during that time, you know, in, in, in deployment and combat situations, we're exposed to a lot and there's just sort of the normal wear and tear of the military. There's a normal sort of, um, I guess, acceptance of the, the fine balance between life and death. And you see that sort of all around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there wasn't anything I would say that I would classify as that sort of Hollywood movie, typical PTSD, like somebody dying in my arms or, you know, saving private Ryan cinematic sort of thing. You know, like I said, there's the normal stuff, but when I was getting out, I was like, all right, Hey, I'm good to go. I have this background in in finance. I just, um, did well through, through Ranger. I, uh, like I said, I was in leadership positions, which really helped me build more confidence and understanding of what a leader actually means. Uh, and so when I was getting out, I was, I was pretty excited. I was like, what can, what can stop me? So, yeah. Um, so it sounds like you had a relatively smooth transition. Uh, Possibly. In, in, the, in the mental process. I mean, the, the military <laughs> didn't set me up for success in that. <laughs> I mean, I, I may, I may do, uh, <laughs> but like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it uh, four stars on Yelp in terms of, of, uh, <laughs> The, the, the transition but it, like 
I was excited. Like it was, you know, I ended up traveling just because I was, I was free uh, from from the contract of the government. I had some <laughs> money saved up. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I made it work. Uh, There's a lot of process, um, and I felt like. I mean, I guess we all feel somewhat untouchable after that, like going through those experiences and surviving. Uh, but I, I probably felt a little bit extra just because I was like, oh, well, I already did civilian life a little bit in the professional capacity. And this is going to be sort of a smooth, easy transition. Um, I mean, one kind of hit a lot of headwinds with the VA, uh, kind of a long story short. Uh, I was applying for some disability, hurt my back, hurt some other stuff uh, on the on the body on the long along the way and it took them over two years to even like get mm. back to me yep. uh, and and then when they got back to me it was sort of a, a a laughing sort of affair kind of thing there you know there's all those kind of stories I had to fill out a freedom of informations act for my own medical records which I never thought I would have to do which was which was always fun um, but generally speaking, in terms of like professional and all that, I thought it was good. Traveled for a little bit. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do. Always had this idea of like, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start business or go back to finance. Um, ended up in Tampa, Florida uh, and really hit some, some hard times. Uh, one, you know, it was my own naivete of trying to start a few businesses or join like some fledgling businesses that didn't work out. Um, and then I just found myself in this situation where one, I didn't have any money. Uh, two, my original degree was kind of like not being as effective anymore as, as I thought it would. Um, mm-hmm. the, the ranger side of it was not as effective as I thought it was. Like I thought I had this, this golden resume. Um, and then I didn't know it then, but also some of this mental health these mental health issues, the combination of that, that work hard, play hard, kind of ranger, any military personality as well, as well as mental health issues were really starting to affect my life. And it it took some time before I admitted it or or Mm. realized it and then admitted it. Mm -hmm. What's in that, in that part of the journey, what was, is there a point or a period, you know, point of several months, or maybe sometimes people have very, very unique, specific stories um, when you're just like, fuck, man, I don't know what to do next, but this is the bottom of it. I got to figure yeah. out a way out of this. So, I mean, fortunately, I was, like, that was kind of the hard part, I think, for me. Uh, on the outside, if you saw my life, it'd probably be like, hey, he's doing really well, like had a good job, had good social networks, was was doing my thing, was pretty good at not showing anything. It was really sort of the internal kind of issues. But on the other side, too, if you really dug down deep in my life, you would see like, oh, that's not healthy behavior at all. Mm. Uh, like showing up to work hungover or, <laughs> you know, having to have that bottle of beer to kind of calm the nerves before going in, missing work because of super anxiety, panic attacks, getting to the end of the week, just super depressed and just like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, you know, searching for love in all the wrong places kind mm-hmm. of stuff you know like going to a bar and trying to pick up people girls and like not understanding why those relationships didn't work you know all the mm. things on the outside you're like oh this makes perfect sense but when you're in it 
Um, you're just like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not happy? Mm. Um, why is more drinking not making me more happy anymore? <laughs> all all the, the normal questions. And so it was, I was fortunate that I had the red flags, but I think my experience is pretty similar to a lot of vets where because we didn't have that emblematic trauma event, which is what we define PTSD as, we don't, one, from our ego, want to associate with PTSD, uh, but two, we don't think we classify for that, right? Like going into that of, hey, I didn't have you know, this guy dying in my arms or, or what my friends experienced in, in this, in this deployment situation, I should be good to go. Right. Like they don't tell you that one, just sort of the normal wear and tear mm-hmm. of the military, just this, the shifting of your perspective of your mind being on deployment, being in combat situations for me as a, as a person who worked with mortars constantly, the physical effects on your brain, um, just the potential chemical exposure as we're learning now, the surreal lifestyle, the, when you get out, the absence of purpose, the absence of community, the absence of just that machine that is the military that points you in direction of what you're going to do every hour of the day for whatever period you're there, all that vanishes when you get out, right? And it doesn't matter how well the transition is, teaching you how to write a resume and buying you a suit doesn't transition you back into a civilian right. lifestyle. Yeah. And so people find themselves, and this is what I'm seeing now with the work of Hurl Karch Project, is it's, you know, we, we come one foot in, one foot out. We're in the military world, and we're also trying to do our best in the civilian world. Uh yeah, you bring up a few beautiful points. Uh, first of all, the aspect of TBIs, which uh, TBIs and uh, toxic exposure is finally coming to light, which is awesome. And the other aspect of um, trauma, a lot of so many individuals are not in a combat role, have not seen the quote unquote shit. Um and still they're coming out with what they would be labeled as PTSD. So like, where did it come from? Uh, over the years of me talking to veterans, it's very interesting that many of the veterans have PTSD or traumatic events from before the military. And the military is just the pressure cooker that just blew the top off and let everything loose. Um, so it's great that other people, especially like you and your role that are recognizing this, that you don't have to have your buddy die in your arms to have the downstream effects of trauma. Um, the military is just a pressure cooker for that lovely kind of stuff. So it's really cool that you brought that up also. Yeah, and absolutely. And, it, and it's kind of similar to what I was saying before of, you know, going to the bar to find love or find that relationship you know, your, your trauma begets more trauma, right? Like when you're in mm. a happy spot, you don't attract healthy, put together people. You, you attract other people that are pretty messed up themselves. Uh, and then that just spurs it. But like you said, there's actually been studies that those that have PTSD from the military are far more likely to also have childhood trauma uh, of mm-hmm. some form. And so then it's, it's the combination of, you know, one, 
they went one they're more susceptible uh mm-hmm. to the trauma that comes in the military because when you have childhood trauma you lose your resiliency you lose that sort of dynamic but two uh coming from the traumatic environment inherently they might also seek some sort of situation that is a little chaotic because that's what they grow grew yep. up with that's what they understand yep. yeah exactly um talked to one of my friends and mentors about this. Um, and it's just what I've seen over the years, your nervous system gets used to that upregulated chaotic state and it leads you into that. Uh, that's what leads you into the military because that's what feels comfortable. That's what's normal for you. Um, if you ever downregulated, feel unnormal and you probably start losing your mind, maybe. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that you're also noting that and, um, seeing that in individuals. Um, so let, let's fast forward. You're, you're president's founder, uh, CEO of Heroic Hearts, which uses psychedelic, uh, therapies for veterans. What jumped you from getting out of the military as a ranger to playing in this stuff? uh a path that i never thought would would happen or occur it's one of those things of he told younger me you know you would be the head of a a major psychedelic nonprofit. i'd be like who who are you (laughs) like why are you on drugs and talking to me right now it was never on my sort of like my my personal charted pathway Mm -hmm. um it was just it was really out of necessity i like i said i was in tampa where i was um working i was doing well on the outside but on the inside it was just sort of tor- turmoil and the question that you you brought up earlier was like what was there a spot was there a point that that i noticed it was just kind of more of the red flags of like you know i'd wake up hungover you know busted up hands i fell over because i was like too drunk and i was like what are you doing like you're not living up to like you call yourself a ranger but you're absolutely not mm. doing that just because you put yourself in risky situations doesn't make you a badass or anything like that and so fortunately i saw these like red flags and i was just like dude what's what's going on with you like what is this and so i sought help try to go through the va you know it was, it was essentially a fast track to medications which i really wasn't interested on at that point so i found myself in this situation too and it was just like you have ptsd we can't really tell you what this means and here's medication but beyond that don't ask us any more questions I was like, that's not enough. Like, I can't just have something and not mm-hmm. any way to overcome it. Like, I can't just have like PTSD till I'm 70 or 80. And then, you know, that's fine. I've just suffered that whole time. So it was just kind of that hard headed of like, all right, I got to figure this out one way or the other. And if the, pro- the professionals don't seem to even know, um, and I guess just happenstance, I was listening like a podcast like Rogan or something. and ayahuasca came up and uh at first i just kind of viewed it as like another like trip report um it wasn't really that it was interesting it was entertaining but it wasn't interesting in terms of you know leading me to to go there but for whatever reason i guess it planted a seed and so i just kind of my spare time bored at work like what is this ayahuasca thing and i guess the more i kind of like ventured into it and the more my mental health went downhill it was just sort of the the two lines kind of conjoining um fortunately you know very fortunately um and it got to this point where it was just like all right well whatever i'm doing here i was not happy at work wasn't having a sustainable relationship 
you know, just nothing in that Tampa chapter of life was worth keeping, you know, it was just like Mm. all this, I could just like throw out and be the same where I was, you know, there wasn't like any build there. And so I was like, all right, well, let's change the chapter. All right. Ayahuasca. This this <laughs> like, I've never done a psychedelic, but you know, it seems to be sort of a, a shakeup of the system. And so I did my due diligence. I looked into it. I found a spot that I was like, all right, well, this, this seems somewhat safe. This seems professional. So let's give it a shot. Like at the very least, I knew I wanted to leave my job. And so I was just like, all right, well, let's just change everything because this is not working. And so I just made that decision. I, I gave my two weeks, which ended up being like two months, packed up my stuff, and then essentially just bought a one-way ticket to Peru, uh, traveled around for a little bit, and then uh, went to this ayahuasca retreat in the middle of the Amazon jungle and uh, went through this week course of ayahuasca. For those that don't know, it's a traditional psychedelic that uh, originates in the Amazon region of South America. So across all the countries, it's been around for thousands and thousands of years by tribal communities. And it's a combination of two Amazonian plants. So a vine and, and a leaf that contains DMT. DMT is the sort of psychedelic chemical uh, of it. And it, when you drink it, it's, it's brewed up, distilled, distilled, brings this really thick drink. When you drink it, it causes a psychedelic experience for about four to five hours and it can be very intense it has images it has color shapes uh almost like a very super intense unenjoyable dreamlike state for some people it's amazing and very enjoyable but uh, it can also bring up a lot of stuff that you're either ignoring or successful at compartmentalizing things you might have not even known uh it can bring up you know just uh, the ability to see your your life outside of your own toxic bubble that you created almost like a a rare journey to kind of see a more honest side of yourself. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said you've never done any psychedelics before ayahuasca. Yeah. I never even, I never even smoked pot before that. So I I just went to the, the deep dive. Wow. I, you're the one of quite a few now, individuals veterans we've talked to that never done anything and then ayahuasca is their first endeavor into the psychedelic therapy um which is ballsy (laughs) but i I mean it makes sense it comes from your background as a ranger door kicker um stuff like that um Mm -hmm. but that's exactly who we've seen do it it's like people were like oh i've been to combat i've done all these things i've like taken a bunch of leaves in my life all right Let's do this shit. <laughs> let's go right to the deep end and let's see what I'm about. And 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 I haven't done ayahuasca myself, but I have um, experienced uh, a pretty powerful mushroom journey, and um, it's like a a rocket ship into the deepest layers of your subconscious, like instantly. And yeah. you have no idea if you if you're not well versed in it, if you haven't explored your own uh, subconscious, you have no idea how deep you can go and how many areas of your life you'll find um expressions that you have you've you've either blocked yourself from tried to hide from yourself or somehow like you were saying compartmentalize them and i imagine a lot of stuff came up for you in that first journey can you uh take us a little bit through that first uh experience yeah absolutely um 
us as veterans, especially, you know, I think we're subject matter experts at compartmentalizing just because of the very nature of what we do. You cannot just like break down with reaction emotion based off of what you see, because that's going to get yourself and other people in danger. As a Western culture in general, we're also not very well versed or very good at expressing emotion or expressing trauma. We just kind of we do have a tend to like sweep it under the rug sort of mentality. So it's, it's the combination of both of those things. And all of us as people, you know, we, we, to protect ourselves, especially when there's very traumatic events, we build these sort of uh, infrastructures, these narratives about who we are and what our places in the world. And some of those are very strong and, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to break them because then that essentially in some ways makes us start from the, the, the base level. So even if we have this trauma that that's protecting, like our ego is like, that's the most important to protect to get to the next day. What psychedelics do is one, it kind of breaks past that ego, which is one of the limitations of traditional talk therapy in a sober state is you can talk about something for the next five years. Doesn't mean you're going to get past that infrastructure. The psychedelic allows this opportunity to one, suppress that ego but two, you don't have control. Like the, these things that you come that come up are coming up and you have to face them and you're put in the state where you have to face them. And so it can be very challenging, but it's also your brain with um, the working with a psychedelic that does that. So it doesn't push you past that level that you can't understand. It's never like, you know, a sadistic sort of thing, even though it might seem like it in the moment. Um, but that being said too, as the, the caveat, this is also why you have to be very careful if you are in a very unstable state, a psychedelic is not uh, recommended at all. You, you want to have some sort of ground basis and some sort of work done in terms of your self-understanding. For me, um, and again, like it's oftentimes our trauma, it's emotions not expressed or, or pent mm-hmm. up things. And so they don't necessarily have words. They don't necessarily have images that we can understand or just relate to anything. So my first two ceremonies were just all out chaos, all out war, really the, the, just the pure expression, the pure purging of all this stuff I'd been holding in and, and not exploring, not expressing, not, you know, doing anything with just coming up. And so it was just completely uncomfortable is sort of the, the modest term of it, but just like what's going on. This is like, Am I going insane? This is horrible. Just all out war. And for hours and hours and just puking the whole night and no rhyme or reason to it, just suffering, right? Just like in the pits of despair, hell, all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, what's going on? What is this? But, you know, again, coming from that military background, when I first went into that, it, I think it did bring me respect to it. Like it wasn't just this like, happy-go-lucky trip of me getting high and me having fun. This was something that was worth my respect. This was something to contend with. It wasn't this, you know, drugs are bad. Like, you know, it's just your escapism. This was something. There, mm-hmm. There's a, a profoundness. There's a power to it that I don't still understand. But I knew it wasn't just like me getting high. And through the course of the week, um, the shift was through the process and through, you know, it kind of depends on people's beliefs or, or how they interpret this, 
Uh, some say the psychedelic te teaches you, some say it's just your brain finally finding the pathway, but in an image sort of basis, going into this chaotic all out hell landscape, there's a hand that pulled me out and then instantly pulled me into this sort of peaceful Zen-like state where even physiologically on the outside, I changed to where I was like sweating and not being able to stand still and just like, like puking all the time to instantly calm, feeling mm. a cool breeze on my cheek, uh, heart rate going down, no longer sweating, just like at peace as you can be. And so I stayed in that for maybe a couple of moments, but as the brain has the tendency to do, there's a self-sabotaging aspect to it that the moment I got in there, I was like, but what if I go back? And then the moment I thought that I went right back. So the whole rest of that third ceremony was me just going back and forth of like almost this teaching sort of dynamic of me, my brain self-sabotaging, trying to keep me into this hellish landscape, this torturous landscape where you know, I didn't respect my, I didn't, whatever it is, you know, that, that hate towards self, that, that, that feel like you deserve to be in that state to the counter of just letting go and being at peace and being okay with you being at peace and not needing to struggle. Um, and so I, towards that, I was just back and forth. And eventually I just got so exhausted. I was just like, all right, I don't want to go back to this horrible landscape. Let me just stay here. And yeah. I stayed there and then the first ceremony is a little bit back and forth, but I actually learned to stay there. It was almost like, it was almost like a going to the gym and, 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 you know, doing a new exercise and, and feeling that muscle that you've never felt before, you know, mm. like for people who don't go to the gym, if they start exercising the back, they're like, Oh, I didn't know my back had like this many muscles. That's cool. <laughs> yep, and I think yep. it felt like that same sort of thing with, with my brain where, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I didn't know I had the option to not be suffering. I didn't know mm -hmm. I could, if these things were coming up, I could just, you know, transition, you know, not, not a hundred percent, but I didn't have to just like, okay, I'm suffering my whole life, this sort of thing. And so with that, mm -hmm. and then, you know, beyond that, there's some other, you know, pretty, in, pretty good insights that, that came up. Uh, and then also just on the physical level after those four ceremonies my brain just felt reset my mind felt sort of more like a cohesive for me uh machine than it ever had been before of oh yeah my brain this my ego is actually not out to kill me not out to put me in self-destructive modes and i had never I had not felt that in, in so long of like, oh, this is me. This is this is something that we can work together on, which is so weird from the out anybody who's probably listening mm -hmm. to this to understand, but it really was in, in sort of past reflection of it was just yeah. a night and day of like, okay, this is you know, and that's not to say it's just all magic and I'm cured and all that kind of stuff. You still have the day-to-day check-ins, you still have spots where you fail you still have spots where you're just like oh man like i drank too much last night i probably shouldn't be doing that you know you still nobody's perfect none, none of us are gonna achieve dalai lama state uh, i know i'm not so it's kind of still but it, human. Gave, it gave me more tools to to at least get on the right path mm. I, yeah that, I, that initial break of that barrier that gives you the opportunity to um a word we don't like to use in the military, surrender. 
um, is, is really the only way through. And it, I, I say this across any experiences of, of deep healing, including what you're sharing about ayahuasca, especially psychedelics, um, holding on tighter is never going to get you anywhere. You're just going to keep suffering. Uh, and part of that, it, it's, it's amplifying your own belief system. And so if you think you're not worthy, it's going to intensify the lack of worth until you really let go of that story. And it sounds yeah. like even in that last day, you were like back and forth, your body was like, we're done. I'm done. I, I'm out, man. I surrender. Um, and yeah, so much more like space the, opened up. It's like the ultimate prolonged exposure therapy, you know, like in prolonged <laughs> exposure, they like, all right, tell the story again, tell the story. And people are like, I don't want to talk about it. Whereas this is like, all right, you want to feel like you're a piece of shit. We will make you feel like you're a piece of shit for as long as you want. Let us know when you're done feeling like a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that, that situation, five minutes feels like an eternity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you lose sense of time and that's exactly. the, the ultimate sort of thing. You're just like, well, I, I actually had that moment in, in round two where, you know, it was like so miserable, you know, what I would do in training or like, yeah, some sort of training where it's like, okay, well, I can make it for another minute. Okay. Another minute pass. I can make it, make it for another minute. I can take one more step, you know, just that mm -hmm. sort of like, and then eventually you get there. I was trying to do that and it was like, okay, I can make it for another 10 seconds. And then it just like zapped my con my uh, perception of time. I was like, Oh shit. I don't even have that anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that you bring that up because um, you know, in the Marine Corps we have a very similar kind of ethos and, and I, this is part of why uh, the paradigm shift between being in the military and becoming a, a fully, I would say, um, on the path to thriving, a human on the path to thriving is that the baseline operation of whatever your machine is, isn't working anymore. The, the, the yeah. push to the next edge, the like, hold it down because the people need you to, to keep it together for this, this event you're going to, or this deployment or this thing, combat or, 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 or whatever. It's, it's an operating system that it, it truly is going to continue to keep digging deeper and deeper holes. Um, and the, you know, obviously as you're sharing, like, you know, there's deeper parts of you already know that and you know, it's not working. Um, and I, I'm glad that you share that because a lot of uh, the rhetoric out there in, in our culture, especially in, in the veteran community, continues to reinforce the same things we talked about when you first joined or in those in those couple of years that you were in the military. You go, hey, yeah, that's valuable in that particular setting, in that moment. Today, when you're in your 30s or 40s or whatever, and you're having issues in your relationships and all these other signs that you were talking about, you're disenfranchised with your work, those are all signs that there, there could be another way of doing this. And I'm, I'm glad that ayahuasca, uh, and especially for those of you who are brave enough to do that the, as the first one, uh, cracks open that, that seam and, and what's available afterwards, uh, seems extremely powerful. So I'm, I'm curious about that, uh, post, you know, you said you had some clarity afterwards. What were you able to, what was that able to guide you towards? Um, and how did you come back to doing what you're doing now? Um, yeah, with heroic yeah hearts. To, to what you're saying too I think it's also how we view change and transition I think 
you know, especially the military transition is like, let's give you a seminar uh, and boom, you're changed. And <laughs> it's not any deeper yeah, than yeah. that. Like you have to go through like PowerPoint slides and like the chains, like you said, in programming is a, is a good way to, to view it uh, because it's, it's much deeper than just uh, talking to somebody and having that. Um, yeah, so the change afterwards is just, I came from that experience and it was just like, you know, what the hell happened to me? I just left my, my previous life. And so I was trying to figure out what was next, what was the next chapter for me. And I didn't really have any guidance. There wasn't, you know, any sort of support system either, really. I uh, just went through this like major monumental sort of experience. And it was just like kind of on your own to figure it out. There wasn't this talk of integration as there is now. Right. Um, and so I kind of had to like stumble and, and figure it out for myself and, but still kind of enjoying my, my, my temporary freedom, at least of, you know, getting out of the, the, the previous situation I was in and just figuring out like what just changed in my brain, because um, it's not just all instantaneous. Sometimes you notice things down the line, but around that time is just sort of, Hey, I stumbled onto something. This seemed to have helped me. This, the, these results seem to be lasting I did some research and saw there was some scientific uh, evidence behind it. Uh, psychedelics really weren't as in vogue as they, they are now. Yep. Uh, not, I mean, there are some circles talking about it, but not to the extent that it's, you know, on, on, on CNN or, or Fox News or whatever publication. Um, and it was just like, hey, I, I happened to stumble on this and make the journey uh, I wouldn't want somebody to just stumble into Peru and take whatever shaman arrives at the airport or what have you. So it's kind of that sort of like burgeoning idea again of I stumbled onto something that really helped me. Um, and given my background, I felt I had the, the ability to at least make something of it. Never intending on doing this as like my profession or my paycheck or, you know, nobody starts a nonprofit thinking that's what's going to like make them rich or anything like that. If they do, they should probably rethink it. Uh, I was just kind of more of like, Hey, I had, we all have buddies that unfortunately didn't make it uh, or are actively, you know, taking their life as fast as possible with alcohol or drugs or anything else. And so it's just like, Hey, well, let me, let me put this message out there. Let me like see if I can help other vets get to this in the same way if they, if they're interested and, and kind of do my part. And the moment I just kind of put that out there and figured out how a nonprofit works and, and everything, uh, it just sort of took a life of its own. And it really was based off of what, what I was lacking, like, you know, the preparation side of it, of like knowing what I'm getting into, having other veterans that can kind of speak the same language, the follow-up care, the integration, you know, what we all talk about now, you know, breath work, mindfulness, all these things are very important. Uh, if you just go to the retreat, you don't get that. The retreat itself can be very powerful, but it's it's only a piece of the puzzle. Um, so that that was sort of the 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 start, the inception of Heroic Hearts Project, uh, just sort of the the need and the lack of anything available. And like I said, from there is just putting it out there, and then more and more veterans just started asking and coming along. Uh, I was fortunate enough to meet the right people at the right time still an uphill battle with everything of a nonprofit dealing with psychedelics is, is not an enviable position, yeah. uh, but also COVID happened and, you know, all the, all the other kind of stuff, but, mm -hmm. you know, we, we continue to kind of move forward. Uh, so did you come up with the idea of heroic hearts 
after the first time you did ayahuasca or did, did it come in? When did you come up with the idea for this? Yeah, it was, it was, a uh, it was a while. It was, I wouldn't say a while after it was, it was definitely weeks afterwards. It wasn't the intention during the ceremony. It was more just about me of why I had been in that situation that I was at and what is this psychedelic? Like, honestly, the majority of the ceremony was me just trying to hold on to the ride and like not, not die. Uh, but then obviously the, the good insights and everything else that came, but it's more personal of like, you know, you need to heal yourself before you can put yourself out there and help others. Uh, the idea for heroic hearts just really came out of that me coming from this and like sort of randomly the power, the potency of it. Uh, you know, there's other people that retreat hearing their stories of, of helping them with ADHD, depression, um, even certain diseases and stuff. And then, you know, just already at that point, having double digit friends who had taken their own life of like something's not working in the system mm -hmm. and why not have another tool? Maybe it's not for everybody, but people should at least know that there might be another option. Like even that glimmer of hope is, is something that a lot of veterans don't have right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's really just out of that, like very simple, very basic of like, Hey guys, there's another option out here. Uh, if you're interested, I can help you from my own journey of how to get connected to it. And I could possibly provide you some support. So it was just that very simple earnest of, that to where then I had a pro, you know, as I grew, I had to make it more of a program and add, add other stuff just to make it actually more legitimate and professional. Um, so I think you correct me if I'm wrong. 2017 was the start of heroic hearts, right? Yeah. So you've been at this for four plus years. Five years was our anniversary uh, okay. as of April. Yeah. That, I remember seeing that good for you. That's awesome. Um, what has the reception been for this? Uh, I mean, across the board, positive. Um, <clears throat> you know, what keeps me going again, <laughs> it's a nonprofit. Like, you know, I had, I had my own aspirations being in finance of like, Hey, let's, <laughs> let's make millions of dollars and have <laughs> that penthouse. So, I mean, it's a labor of love for sure. Um, and, but it's been a struggle, you know, like just, um, we're finally getting to a spot where we're actually like able to pay people this year. Um, but before that, it was like me doing odd jobs and, and doing this and that just to, you know, fund it personally. And that, you know, I'm not a rich person. I don't have a big social connection or like rich co social connection. So, I mean, it, it was, it was that labor of love, but it was just when we saw the results, you know, for me, from my experience could have been a fluke. Uh, but then when we sent the first person, and then when we send the first group and we started seeing this consistent results, and then when we yeah. uh, formalize our program and start seeing even better results, and then anytime I go to a retreat, even to this day, it's like, okay, we have to keep doing this. Like, like the, the, the profound changes of people who have been in therapy for 10, 15 years, and then they finally see some sort of glimmer of light of some sort of mm -hmm. like, oh shit, that was a big breakthrough that I, I didn't think it was possible like it, it just continues it on it's the the fuel for the car and so by any means necessary that's always been the like okay we have to keep pushing this forward hmm. I'm curious as you're looking at um 
to zoom out just a little bit, um, as you started to get the word out and you started to bring people on board, what was it like in those early stages of connecting with donors and, and kind of figuring out the nonprofit world? Um, I'm curious first about that, and then I'd love to pick your brain on, um, you know, the nonprofit sector as a whole, especially around these holistic, uh, uh, you know, plant medicines, uh, along with other things that people are doing alternatively out there. Uh, I would, I would say I'll preface it with the VA is like the absolute basic support that's, that exists. And then there's like a bunch, a whole world that I imagine, you know, a lot better than us. So I'm curious about that beginning of that journey. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, to kind of circle back a little bit on Lance's, uh, main question of like the reception, you know, to this point, the, the veterans we serve have had amazing sort of benefits sort of across the board. Um, and it's just been clear too that, you know, there's, there's a failure in the system. Just the amount of veterans every day that come seeking what we're doing is just the need, that demand of it, uh, that, that it's there. So it's unfortunate that the system has come to that to where, you know, the small nonprofit that's having to send veterans to other countries is, you know, holding up the, the mental health side of things. But um, on the, the side of what we do and the team do every day, it gives us motivation of like, hey, we're, we're still needed. We're still wanted. I don't ever want to get into a situation where I'm just a bloated nonprofit for the sake of, you know, paying everybody's salary as opposed to actually doing good work. Um, on the reception, psychedelic space has been pretty interesting, even though, you know, five years is not a long time, but it's, it's, it's sort of dog years in the psychedelic space. Mm -hmm. And 2019 was a super pivotal year for psychedelics because it really was night and day before and after. Because in 2019, you had Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Mm -hmm. You had more uh, publicity around the MAP study uh, that the MDMA has been super effective. Uh, the, the most recent clinical study was 67% complete efficacy in terms of curing PTSD. You had Johns Hopkins developing their psychedelic center. You had all these major names and institutions, professional researchers coming out in, in support of it. So it finally started to make psychedelics something that people could talk about before. It's still this very like, oh, psychedelics, don't, don't say that too loud here. And so right. it, it really was that sort of pushing the car uphill. I mean, it still is, but a different degree um, where I just, you know, and me not having my network is like local network, like friends and family that can donate 50 bucks, but not like billionaires, millionaires, or even thousandaires of anywhere. Um, and so it really was just this like cold calling, emailing, proving myself not only to the other people in the psychedelic space, proving myself to the veteran space, proving the organization, the concept, and, you know, calling veteran nonprofits like, hey, we're doing this. And it was like, you're taking veterans to psychedelics in Peru and you want us to support you. How do you think this is going to go, you know? Uh, mm. So there really was no end state to that. And so we just had to be creative. We had to figure out how to get attention here and there. And little by little, we kind of like chipped away and, um, you know, from our own efforts and just sort of the nature of the, the rising tide of psychedelics gaining prominence, it really sort of helped us get to that spot. And since I think we were there before that sort of pivotal moment, uh, 
I think it also gained us respect within the psychedelic community. Some of the old guard people, you know, saw that we're in it, not just to kind of like capture the the fame and glory uh, of, of, you know, when things are popular, but that we, we were, you know, trying to do it. But also what we really try to do is, is do the best for the veterans, but then also respect the space, you know, and that's the important thing in psychedelics is a lot of these, especially the, like mushrooms or ayahuasca that come from lineages that come from tribes that come from the, these, these people that have been doing this for a while. And so we always try to one, um, obviously like work with the community. We're not just trying to like exploit it, but also like preserve that, like teach the veterans of these lineages that this is coming from and where are we, the, the shared knowledge that these shamans are willing to, to bring to us to help the veterans. And so preserving that that traditional preserving that ceremonial side of it i think is super important you know i don't want it just to you know i think it's good that there's certain dynamics of it coming to the clinic and if, if people want to and go see a doctor and in the future take psilocybin beautiful that that should be allowed for them but i also think that we should also respect where this stuff comes from and there should always be that that pathway and that that reverence for for these traditional styles of, of doing it. What do you, what do you think opens up? I, I know I've, I've, I feel very similarly, but um, people really discuss like what it is about the, um, the lineages, the ceremony, the experience beyond just the, the science of it, what's happening in your brain and body, et cetera. What is it about this, having this connection to the lineages or having this, this this deep respect for that that what do you think it brings to people especially to you and and to the veterans that have gone through it with you so i mean one piece is it's just humility right it's humility that we don't know everything and it's humility that other cultures even if we view them as not as advanced or sophisticated maybe might know more than we do or maybe our medical model isn't the be all end all so it's, it's, it's on a personal basis going into a different setting and just allowing that you're with experts, even if you don't know why, or you can't explain it. And so it's the humility and then sort of that passiveness of like, hey, I don't need to control every single situation here. Beyond that, you know, in the Western world, we have sort of the medical model, scientific method, which is beautiful and it, it's really good at certain things. But again, we've, we've kind of overemphasized that that can explain every single ailment. And that's already shown a lot of weakness and failure, mental health landscape, look at it. It's a pretty clear example that, that, mm -hmm. that maybe we're missing some things. As humans, we are tribal, we are communal, we evolved. And so all those, these ceremonies maybe didn't go through the FDA process or the scientific method, they still evolved over hundreds, if not thousands of years. And like any other evolutionary period, it fine tunes and it makes it better and better to a reason why people pass it down. They wouldn't pass down something that kills 90% of people, right? <laughs> that, that doesn't make sense for any sort of lineage. Um, and so these things predate obviously the FDA, they predate, you know, our conception of Western medicine doesn't mean one's, or one's better than the other and there's flaws and, and all, I'm not trying to romanticize it, but we do have to like take a step back and, and realize where these things come from. It wasn't just, you know, sort of the, the, 
downgrading term of like, oh, jungle medicine, these people are unsophisticated, they don't know what they're doing. If you go to the jungle and, and, and some of these healers, these tribal healers, they can go through the forest and point out trees of what they do. Um, you know, this one helps with the stomach, this one helps with headaches, this one's an antiseptic. That's actually where a lot of our common medicine came from. They just took out the, the chemical element of those trees but it took these, these, these village elders to actually preserve the knowledge and, and lineage of all that kind of stuff. So again, it comes down to humility, but it also comes down to, we are ingrained uh, to have ceremony, communal sort of li living. Um, and the elements that ceremony brings. So we, we, we pass down information from the very early days through story, through um, these, through song and dance. If you look at any sort of native tradition, there's always these, these big ceremonies where people are singing, dancing, sharing with healing. There, there's all these sort of elements that, that continue to be repeated even at diverse locations of the globe. And I think we've really lost sense of that as a culture. We do have certain ceremonies and traditions but they tend to be very superficial. You know, they tend to mm -hmm. be like, okay, we have to get married. What does that mean? Okay. We signed a contract with the government. Cool. Okay. Hey, Lance, you're a man today. What does that mean? You get a cake. Cool. You know, they're, they're, we don't really have that. We have like, we have the benchmarks that we pat that we we've gotten from previous societies, but we don't have the meaning, the significance. We don't have the communal support, you know? Um, and I think that's what we have with the psychedelics changing sort of perspective. There is a big opportunity here to kind of bring that in. And I think from a military perspective, we, we tend to be more connected to that because there mm -hmm. is more of a sense of ceremony and tradition in the military. We do do things for a reason, except for the out processing, <laughs> but like going into <laughs> it uh, and everything else, there is this 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 thing that has been passed down right and so i think that's why it's so powerful even if we can't quantify it on a medical model even if we can't say well this song works really well for depression but this song uh that's not that great for depression uh and this fire ceremony is good for anxiety you know that's never gonna <laughs> like cash out but that doesn't mean they're just as valuable right mm -hmm. yeah I, um, I, and that and that kind of zooms it out too Mm -hmm. with mental health especially we try to like bring it down to the finest element of like what pill will change your brain chemistry enough to where you're just happy but you're not happy just because of the serotonin in your brain you're happy because of support of community of purpose of all these all these things that a drug can never bring to your life and so if yep. you're just doing one without the other you're going to get into the situation that we are in exactly right now so mm -hmm. you know obviously not super surprising. Uh, while you're talking, a, a phrase came to mind for me that I quite often think about. It's uh, the ab absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. Uh, meaning just because we can't um, quantify it or measure it doesn't mean it's not effective. And a lot of what you're talking about, we, there's no way in our scientific method that we can measure it and say that this is effective. And it's tons of evidence showing that it's effective, um, which is very powerful. And then um, also along the same lines is 
these people, you said it's gone down through generations, they are going through the scientific process. They've made an observation that this is effective. And then they go back and they test it again and again and again and again. And it just passed down over generations. So they've run through the scientific process, just not our scientific process in the medical model. Um, yeah. So it, it's great that you're bringing that up. Yeah, and I yeah, love I that mean, last piece about ceremony as well, that it, it ties together this um, this process that's happening physiologically, emotionally, psycho, uh, psychophysiologically. Like you're connecting a lot of these dots as as the true uh, reality of your body and your mind is that they're deeply interconnected. There's no such thing as a separate thing. Um, and at the same time, uh, bringing in the element of ceremony, bringing in tradition, allowing yourself to surrender to the experience, to trust someone else who is your guide to show you what's possible. Um, that opens up, I think that in the actual um, experience of it in the moment when you're in ceremony is what enables you to open up and see all these areas within yourself while looking at it. So I think the ceremony brings you into this micro of the experience. It creates this, 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 yeah. Like, I mean, for many of us in the military, all the ceremonies that you did there, I mean, they're a little bit rigid back then. And, and for a healing ceremony is almost the complete opposite. It's the least rigid thing you can imagine um, about self-exploration with a guide. And I find yep. that connection to be really, really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I ch would challenge anybody, like it, it's hard to approach right now unless you're in the right country, but if you go to any sort of ancient tradition, ceremony, religious chant, anything that there's like chanting, music, drums that, that has been passed down for a while with, with ceremony and you go into it, like it's hard to not be, like you, you would have to be like, actively engaged to not be effective or not to go into sort of a trance communal state like we're built for that that's mm -hmm. how we evolved uh that's how we pass down information through these community circles um as much as we try to think that we're we're more advanced or evolved than our primitive roots that's always going to come back it always comes back to this the simple stuff you know and you know that's with we we the, the perfect test case was social media of like, okay, well we can be connected, but not really connected. And it didn't really help us out. Right. Like it, it made us more isolated. You can have right. 5,000 friends and be the most lonely person in the world, which is generally the case. But if you just have one or two friend that come visit to your house or you have a beer with or something like that, that might be all you need. You know, that, that in itself is the support system. We need community. We need human interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, within within heroic hearts, what has created that level of community, or what has enabled you to create community among the people who've been to these ceremonies, uh, and what uh, that shared experience? What is that opening up, and how is those relationships different than they were, sort of in that military setting when it's which a little bit more uh, distant? Yeah, so there's kind of two things there that's pretty interesting. So one, when they go to it, we generally do like small groups, like 10 to 12 people. And so like over the course of the week, bonds can form that are as strong as anything, you know, just because it's such an intense experience and mm -hmm. you're so vulnerable and open up, like people form, you know, I'm still on a, a, um, a WhatsApp group of the first retreat and people are still responding to each other. And this was five years ago. So 
you know, people who were absolute strangers before just over a week and still responding. We still had that. We always set that up with vets. Same sort of case. So like, hey, how's everybody doing? Um, and so the, that's inherently built into it. One of the things we, and so the, the two things I was saying that was interesting is when you go to the ceremony, one, as I was saying before, when they get out of the military because of the shitty transition process, there's a lot of people that are still like one foot in, one foot out, mm-hmm. kind of still in that combat or military. So mm-hmm. that sort of reset that uniquely psychedelics can offer, I think helps them kind of transition uh, to the next chapter, to the maybe civilian or wh- whatever they consider themselves afterwards. But two, a lot of that to kind of avoided uh, being around other veteran circles for certain reasons, just, you know, the nature of it, uh, find that they missed it. Uh, the, the positive sides of being around other vets, they're just like, oh, this is really awesome because these people understand me. We have the same sense of humor. They talk the same language. You know, sometimes people getting out of the military, especially if they have bad experiences, tend to avoid other vets like the plague. And we all have good examples of why, you know, there it can be somewhat of an obnoxious community in certain circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also our community. It's, it's, it's a unique experience that only a certain percentage of the population enjoy. And, and, um, and so being in these circles, they kind of rekindle like, oh, hey, the, like I actually do like being with other military. So it's kind of the, the two sides of like, you know, getting rid of the, the bad side and sort of reincorporating with, with the good side of, of the military. Um, but the, the missing piece, and you'll see this across the psychedelic world, is there's a lot of attention, excitement around psychedelics, and there should be, and it's about time, and hopefully it brings in research and a lot of money to it. That's absolutely what's necessary to change sort of the, the outdated policies. Um, but with that, with the excitement, that also brings on of like, hey, the psychedelics is the, the, the experience is the only thing like that's the magic pill. That's everything takes psilocybin. And again, this kind of goes to the FDA process, like does psilocybin cure depression? Well, cures parts of it, but not the whole thing. And so people kind of get, you know, stuck on that. Mm -hmm. Um, What you're going to see in the psychedelic space in general is that's not enough of there. It needs to have this more holistic. And I know that's kind of a tricky term, but, a more broad spectrum sort of approach mm-hmm. to it of like what happens mm-hmm. after the retreat, who do you have to check into, who's holding you accountable, what other resources do you have? If you leave somebody going from psilocybin or ayahuasca retreat and they say, hey, I'm going to meditate every day and they've never done it before, they're probably not going to meditate every day afterwards. They might try for a couple of days, mm-hmm. but if they're in a community, if they have somebody holding them accountable, maybe you up those numbers. Um, or maybe you give them something else that's a little bit more approachable. So that's sort of the trick question, even for us. And, you know, we're always mm-hmm. sort of experimenting and seeing what can we do more. It's tricky because everything needs funding. Everything needs financing. I know you guys are in the same sort of boat of like, what can we do to better serve veterans and get money for it, you know? Uh, but I think once we reach a certain threshold of the beauty of, you know, veteran landscape can be tricky like mm-hmm. uh you mentioned john and there's a lot of great organizations there's a lot of not so great veteran organizations but there there are some very good sincere ones and i think if we i think with i think the opportunity that psychedelics allows people are finally paying attention and people are finally open that hey we might not know everything let's let's rethink this model and i think that is a big opportunity to 
rebuild this ecosystem and build it better. And that will take all the nonprofits that are actually doing good work to work together um, to sort of figure out what different pieces, what different resources, you know, there's always going to be some sort of competition, but not, it can always be healthy too. Um, and I think that's the opportunity here is like, even at Heroic Hearts, we do, we do what we do and we try to do as, as best we can, but we're not the whole, the whole puzzle. We're just a piece there. Right. And so who can we work with? How can we collaboratively uh, do what we're doing and talk with other people to make a whole pipeline of support depending on the individual? Mm. Yeah, I love that you are already that, that last point about um, creating like a it's creating a naturally decentralized model where it's like, oh, the, that organization is working with MDMA. This organization is with psilocybin. This organization is taking people down to Peru. And and it's it's a concept that most military members certainly don't grasp because you're you have one machine. These are the resources like that's what it is. And when you're when you're out of the military, what's like uh, any for anyone else in the world to notice and realize that there are many resources out there and that each one of these communities are going to be a slightly different vibe, slightly different energy, a slightly different uh, leadership. And I, I, I commend you, Jesse, for uh, walking the walk and, and being a, a guide to others, having gone through that experience um, and doing in a way that feels in alignment with your integrity. I mean, it's taking you five years to build it to a point where you're able to sustain yourself and pay, pay others to, 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 to be with you as well. And I think um, there, I imagine that in the space of psychedelics, especially as it's blowing up, there may be a tendency like any uh, entrepreneurial ventures or markets that are opening up to like, whoa, like jet set and like, let's grow it as quickly as possible. And the truth of these medicines and the truth of any healing process is that any guide who's in this space needs to be it needs to have climbed that mountain on their own already. And in order to reach back and say, Hey brother, I've been where you are. I can support you. You have to sit in that you're sit in the capacity to speak from integrity. Like I have walked those steps and here is how I can do so. Um, and I think it's really powerful that looking at it from both perspectives, like let's create the organizations that are out there and let's uh, also be in the space of, each one of our leadership is in our integrity. So I imagine to go back to the question about the nonprofit spaces that you've been in, um, veterans, I'm going to zoom out a bit, like veterans are, especially post 9-11, uh, post, uh, I would say after Afghanistan, 2014, 15, like when I, I commissioned around that time, um, that, uh, you know, people want to help. They were like, oh shit, we sent all these boys to war and all of a sudden, like they're, they're having issues coming back in and living their lives. Um, and it, it becomes a, a popular thing and it's great. I think there's a lot of really great hearts out there. What have you found in the nonprofit space to be challenging the things that have kind of surprised you about it uh, in a, in a positive sense and in some of the negative aspects of it um, in navigating all these areas you've been, you've been doing for the last few years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky because I think each, each nonprofit's unique. I mean, they all have the same same needs and demands. I mean, this one's unique just because we are dealing one with illegal substances. Um, and so for people who are listening, we're not giving people illegal substances. We're helping them get to spots where it is legal and has these sort of traditions of it. Um, but no matter what, it's like a, 
you know, where traditional nonprofits might get a, a, a grant from Boeing or, or Bank of America, you know, there's no way either of those companies are going to be associated with psychedelics, right? At this point, it, it will change. Right. Right. So like the traditional like associations. And so even though it has changed since, oh, since 19, um, there's still the stigmas and then it's, it's sort of a upping. So right now the comfortability with, with even more traditional organizations is okay. Well, is this going to a clinical trial? Like, is this like with people mm. in sterile lab coats and everything's controlled still this traditional. So it's still that sort of fight of, getting people out of this dogmatic perception which is which is very tricky it's 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 its own sort of fight but dogmatic perspective of mental health of what is legitimate treatment of how do we ascertain legitimate treatment um so you're fighting many battlefronts at the same time you're not only fighting the stigma around psychedelics you're you're fighting sort of dogmatic perspectives of of mental health Mm. in general and and validation of certain procedures and treatments um and the, the 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 psychedelic industry is still very nascent so there's just a lot of learning curve so even if there is some funding here and there it hasn't really developed to be sort of an efficient sort of method um and then the nonprofit space in general what people don't tell you so anybody considering doing nonprofit is sort of the veteran go-to of like hey i see this and, and I've, i fell into the same sort of thing uh but you know i, I feel like unless you're like consider if you're willing to push a car uphill for three, four years at the very least, and maybe you don't get paid and maybe you don't get any thanks or anything like that. Not that that's what it's all about, but are you willing to do that? And when you're at your lowest low and you don't really like, what am I doing here? Are you still willing to push forward? Unless you have that level of confidence in what you're doing, I'd say, you know, maybe find some other avenues. There's other ways to help other people. There's a lot of nonprofits look out there. Um, the heart, I'd say just from a nonprofit standpoint, what I didn't really realize is that there's, as with like businesses, there's certain nonprofits that are successful that don't necessarily do great jobs because they're better at marketing and selling themselves. And there's other nonprofits that do great jobs, but aren't the most lucrative. And so you just have to kind of come into the understanding. There's a very rare individual like leader, and I'm, I'm definitely not one. I'm kind of more of an operations person, not a great salesman. So this is always what I've struggled with of like, I know we have a great product and how do I sell that? That's just not my natural sort of mentality of going out there and, and getting the big checks. And so bringing on, so for me, been a humbling thing of like okay what am i lacking who can help me with this um but that's also sort of the interesting lesson i've learned of you kind of see in like politics and everything else of like sometimes the the ones that get all the notoriety are not necessarily the the best for the system or know exactly Mm -hmm. what they're doing and so it's kind Mm -hmm. of it's the nature of the beast you know um but that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. It detracts from what you're doing. It just means you have to figure out other ways, creative ways. It's always a challenge on yourself. It's not what's wrong with the markets. What can you do better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you have a good product and it's not selling, it's not the product, it's the marketing. Yeah. Um, 
or it's your delusion that it's a good product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to go there, but yeah, agreed. Um, so where are you at right now with Heroic Arts and where are you planning to go? What, what, what do you imagine? What's on the next few pages of this uh, progression on where you're going? Yeah, so fortunately, you know, we're, we're finally getting our, our good stride. Um, you know, we, 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 we purposely went very slow at the beginning just to make sure we're dealing with serious things so like people with PTSD and, mm-hmm. you know, untested um, substances and how to do it. Like the protocols that we've done have, were not developed. You know, we had to figure all that out. So we wanted to purposely go slow to make sure we're doing no harm, just, just as much good as possible. But, you know, especially in the past couple of years, we really are confident in our program and what we have to offer. And then money's starting to flow in a little bit more. We've uh, fortunately developed a good name for ourselves um, to where we, you know, people, I think, trust that we are, one, legitimately trying to just do good for the space and also provide a good product. And so, like, finally getting into the stride with good members on the team and all that kind of stuff and more regular retreats and, proto- and, and protocols and, and training, bringing on new veterans as coaches, training them up. So building this sort of self-fulfilling ecosystem, which is beautiful to see in itself, of not only helping people and healing people, but also empowering them to heal others, which is the, the be-all, end-all. Um, and so just kind of continue into that of, like, we want to get to that sort of sustainable state where we're regularly doing retreats, have these offerings with other psychedelics as well, because each one offers, you know, something different. And so kind of figuring out where the person's at, like mm. what they, what would be a better uh, situation for them as opposed to one size fits all solution. Um, but beyond that, it kind of goes into the conversation that we were talking about before. It's not on us, nor would we ever be able to, serve every single veteran that needs psychedelic care. You know, we're not the VA. It's in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands that could benefit from psychedelics potentially. Mm -hmm. And there's no way we're going to rise to that. And if we did rise to that, we'd be a completely different organization. And, you know, all, all things kind of go out, you kind of lose quality. I don't think the, the ayahuasca framework supports that in terms of sustainability and, healers and all that kind of stuff it would just be a disaster but what we can do is one have this continual connection to it and always fine-tune our product and keep an ear to the ground but then two do what we can to one connect to other organizations like your guys like your both of you uh but two how can we help community so not necessarily have a heroic hearts brick and mortar in every city near you um But if there is a local circle, depending on the laws that like, hey, we're in Austin, we're in um, Tulsa, and we have a lot of veterans and they're looking for local access, how can we help them to empower them to form their own circle to where we can help them figure out who is a good leader, uh, who's trained in the local area, do proper intake, have proper coaching. So not necessarily, you know, dictate what they're doing, but actually put uh, standardization of protocols and then safety checks and uh, just what we can do on the higher level on the international level of like hey we've been working with these people we can sort of validate this or we can help you out and augment that so you're free to develop your culture but this is what we found to be effective 
And I think that, you know, in terms of sustainability, in terms of local access is the key to this. And again, we, we're talking about that decentralized model. It's not about us becoming, you know, the wounded warrior of psychedelics where we have a war chest of tens of millions of dollars, or I don't know, hundred millions now. Um, that's not my goal. You know, my goal is to what can we do in the space and then make it more not automated that's a bad word but you know make it more consistent and empower local people to serve their own community and then that way again it fills the ecosystem when people go through it they can become coaches they can make some money here and there they can have uh, peer support people can have access to more affordable means the thing that people are not really talking about in the psychedelic space is as as effective as it is and as great as the results we've seen from a traditional medical standpoint, it will be grossly unaffordable to the vast majority of Americans. Because if we look at therapy right now, uh, and if you look at the insurance model, uh, it is really heavy on, you go to the therapist, they prescribe you a medication, you might do some talk therapy, but they're really relying on the medication to resolve most of your problems. And if you talk to psychotherapists, a lot of them that, that can afford or that have the clientele that can afford it, they don't even take insurance because with insurance, it pushes them to lessen the actual um, amount of time with, the, with the, the patient and more on the prescription side. You're looking at psychedelics, even on the small scale, these experiences on the small scale of ketamine last two to three hours on MDMA, maybe five hours or psilocybin, five, six hours. And you're going to have to have at least one person there with a map study to have two people there. So now you're just adding up these costs. And for people who already couldn't afford mental health care, they're definitely not going to be able to afford that, right? Uh, and especially not follow-ups. And so it's great that that's going through. Um, but realistically, those that can't afford mental health care are probably the ones that need it the least. And those that can't, are the ones that need it the most, but won't be able to afford it. The way we get around that is empowering the community on a local level. Mm -hmm. There's no reason beyond extreme cases that community and peer support cannot handle the majority of mental health cases where if people are just empowered of asking the right questions, identifying red flags, especially with the empowerment of psychedelics done in a safe way where there are trained practitioners that have experience, you can, you can probably do a lot more effective um, mental health treatment on a local level than you could just a one-on-one, -on -one, you go into the clinic and, and relying on that. I'm not even going to get started on the insurance and the normal medical model. I'll, uh, we don't have enough time in the day for me to talk about that. I deal with that every day <laughs> in, on my job and it's, it's frustrating. And you bring up a very good point. Um, I'm going to honor everybody's time here. Um, this has been a great conversation, Jesse. Like I said, this was a very great podcast. And um, I imagine this is just the tip of the iceberg of what we could talk about and the rabbit holes we can go down. Uh, one thing before we wrap up, I would really like to point out is one thing that you're doing and the people that we've talked to that have gone down with you is the prep work and the integrative work that you guys provide. Um, which is way better than drinking a few cups and then coming back and not knowing what to do with the information that you've got. So you're doing a great job with that. Um, 
if when people listen to this and it's something that they want to look into, how can they reach out? Where can they find you? What to look for? So Heroic Arts Project, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So our whole ability and existence is dependent on generosity and donations. Uh, so if you want to help and, and you're, you know, aligned with what we're trying to do, you know, donations is, is the, the, the best way for you to support. Uh, for veterans that are looking for support or looking to learn more, they can go to our website, heroicheartsproject.org, heroicheartsproject.org. Uh, on there, there's a lot of information. There's a FAQ. Uh, there's also a veteran application that if you're interested in going to one of these programs, majority is ayahuasca uh, at this point, um, then you can go sign up. When we have retreats, we send out updates of like, hey, this is a retreat. This is where it's at. If it makes you, makes uh, if it aligns with what you're able to do, then we start the intake process. So we're on online, uh, social media, uh, mostly Instagram. So wherever uh, you are, just check us out. And if you want to learn more or other ways to support, feel free to, to reach out. Very cool. Um, I'm looking forward to this one coming out and seeing the reception that we get from it. Um, Jesse, thanks again. Great pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah, mutual guys. Uh, appreciate you having me on. Thanks for what you guys are doing. Looking forward to continuing this, this relationship and, and being in this cohabitating in this space together.